Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Sophie is off tonight. We start with tragedy in a Surrey townhouse complex. A fatal stabbing has claimed the life of a woman neighbors tell us was a mother of three. Kamal Kuramali joins us live with more on this case and what we know about the suspect who was arrested, Kamal. Chris, a man is in custody in relation to this death of this mother of three. Now, police will not tell us what the relationship was between the victim and the suspect, uh, just that uh, this was a domestic incident. A man handcuffed, taken into custody after a fatal stabbing in what's usually a quiet Surrey townhome complex. Police called to the area near 128th Street and 64th Avenue in the Newton neighborhood around 9.30 Wednesday night. Officers arrived to find a 40-year-old woman inside a home suffering from a single stab wound. The victim transported to hospital where she later died. Sources tell Global News the incident was a result of a domestic dispute. The woman's three children witnessed what was described as a chaotic scene. We are feeling so sad, like uh, what, what they will go through, right? This resident who lives a few doors down says a family of seven lives inside the home. The now deceased mother, her husband, three children and their grandparents. The youngest of the children, only two years old. They're a happy couple like because like our kids like play together sometimes here. So like we never like uh, seems like something is wrong with them. Yeah, something's wrong with the family. We never like seems that. A neighbor says the victim was a teacher who had just come back from vacationing in India with two of her children. We've concealed her identity for safety reasons. She was a teacher. She was nice. Yeah. She was a nice woman? Yeah, she was a nice woman. But uh, personally, she did not talk. She never tell about the family what is happening inside. A similar incident two years ago in the same complex. A triple stabbing left a woman dead, a man and a toddler suffering from serious injuries, and another man in custody in what police described as a case of family violence. They're a happy family, but uh, all of a sudden I don't know what happened. The parallels eerily similar concerning residents on what might happen next in their no longer sleepy community. I was really surprised because there's lots of kids in, in, inside inside the complex. Now, police say because the suspect and the victim uh, knew each other, Chris, uh, there is currently no risk to the public uh, tonight. Uh, AHIT would not make itself uh, available despite multiple requests for an on-camera interview. And uh, what we've also been told uh, is that they did say the name of the victim is uh, not being released to the public at this time out of concern for the privacy of the family and those three young children. Chris, back over to you. Devastating for them, for sure. Okay, thanks very much, Kamal. That's Kamal Kuramali reporting in Surrey for us tonight. Victoria police are investigating a sexual assault on a teenage girl that happened in a park in broad daylight. 
The victim was walking through Topaz Park on Tuesday morning between 9 and 10 a.m. when she reported two men blocked her path and then sexually assaulted her. She eventually managed to break free and run to a safe place to get help. The two men are described as being approximately 60 years old with a disheveled appearance. Both had dark hair and were wearing dark clothing and carrying large black backpacks. Anyone with information is asked to call Victoria PD. A massage therapist working in Surrey has been charged with sex assault. Surrey RCMP say they received a report a woman was sexually assaulted while being treated at a clinic in the 13700 block of 96th Avenue in Surrey, November 14th. 50-year-old Goodbeartur Bodhi Haroldson was since charged and released on conditions. Those conditions include not providing any personal or professional services to any person identifying as a woman. Police are also releasing Haroldson's photo to further the investigation. So if you have any more info that could be helpful, please contact Surrey RCMP's Special Victims Unit. By 2025, Vancouver police officers on the front lines could be wearing body cameras. City Council voted in favor of the motion last night based on a big campaign promise from Mayor Ken Sim. But as Catherine Urquhart reports, some, including police, say there are still too many unanswered questions. Vancouver police officers are often recorded by members of the public. In future, frontline members will likely record interactions as well. Following a majority vote, City Council has instructed staff to assess costs of a body camera program with full implementation planned for 2025. There's all kinds of questions that need to be sorted out. When will they be turned on? How will the information be stored? Where will it be disclosed? Disclosure issues for Crown Council. Also raising questions about a body camera program? the three council members who voted against the program. And there's serious concerns. There's budget concerns and there's operational concerns and there's privacy concerns. And those all need to be addressed. And we haven't necessarily said no to body cameras, but we have to explore uh, the, the right process. And this wasn't done today. Delta police officers are in the midst of doing a pilot project and numerous other departments are bringing cameras on board. But one sociologist who has studied use of police body cameras says having policies in place is critical. Who gets access to the camera footage? When do they get access to the camera footage? Um, what sort of independent oversight is there going to be? Is there going to be unfettered access to body-worn camera materials by third-party groups, uh, independent oversight groups that will be able to uh, be on the lookout for police misconduct. Also, what would happen if an officer fails to turn on their camera? And will the public have a say about the program? We believe there's a lot of value. We also understand there are a lot of people who are or may be uncomfortable with the idea for various reasons, including privacy concerns. So we do want to hear what people have to say. There's still no date for launch of the pilot program. Also unclear how many officers will initially wear them and in which areas of this city, and how much it will all cost. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. B.C., like other areas, is being hit hard by the spread of influenza, and public health officials say in some instances the virus can develop into other health complications like bacterial infection strep A. Health experts say although invasive strep A is rare in Canada, Parents should be aware of the symptoms and what to look out for in young children. Richard Zussman has more. 
It is a face to the devastation of respiratory flu season. Ayla Lawseth, one of six British Columbian kids who have died over the last month, the nine-year-old diagnosed with both the flu and strep A. Saturday night to Monday morning is when things changed. The rash got worse. She got muscle aches, sore joints, fever. British Columbia has seen a rapid rise in flu cases, and public health officials are seeing some instances where the flu contributes to bacterial infections. The most worrisome is strep. We know much more than, than COVID. Influenza can cause more severe illness in children, especially young children, and it can lead to secondary bacterial infections with things like streptococcus. Since September, 15 children in the United Kingdom have died after invasive strep A infections. It spreads through breathing, coughing or sneezing and symptoms appear two to five days after exposure. How do we prevent it? That's where masking comes back into play. You can't spread it if you have it and your droplets are coming out. It's washing your hands well because you can contaminate it through touch. Most strep A cases are mild, but there has been a rise in the more severe invasive ones. Symptoms include a severe sore throat, difficulty swallowing, a fever, swollen tonsils and lymph nodes, and yellow or white spots in a red throat. The initial symptom, you can't tell if it's a virus or if it's a bacteria. A vast majority of strep A cases are not severe, but the bacterial infection evolves. In a minor form, it shows a scarlet fever. More severe, it's pneumonia. In the most serious of those cases, it leads to hospitalization. It's more important about um, understanding that it left untreated. Um, that's when your immune system can get activated. Um, things like rheumatic fever can appear. The most likely treatment is antibiotics, with the key being to visit a doctor or emergency room if the symptoms are severe. Richard Osman, Global News, Victoria. And Keith Baldry joins us now with some breaking developments around childhood illness in this province. Keith, you just spoke with Dr. Bonnie Henry and a new reporting system involving all doctors has just been created. Tell us about it. Yeah, this is called enhanced surveillance. So all physicians and pediatricians have been told to keep uh, eye out for severe uh, cases associated with influenza and to report all deaths to their local health authorities. This comes in the wake of those six deaths of young people since November. Uh, again, the, the flu is here uh, earlier than usual, and it's increasing to a much greater degree than previously in the, before the pandemic. Here's the age breakdown of the young people who have died. One person, uh, one death is in a child younger than five years. Three people, three kids aged five to nine have died as well. There have been two deaths of teenagers aged 15 to 19. And the deaths are all over BC. You saw Richard's story, one in Kelowna. Uh, it's not just confined to Children's Hospital. Four deaths are attributed to secondary bacterial infections. So this again, uh, pediatricians and physicians being put on alert to keep an eye out for severe infections. The number of kids uh, going to uh, health facilities with reporting acute respiratory infections seems to be increasing. I reported last week, it's up. It's about 25% of all the cases right now as of a couple of weeks ago. They haven't posted the latest uh, uh, numbers yet. They usually do it on Thursday. And one final thing, every Thursday now, we're going to get a report from the Center for Disease Control. It's going to be posted on the update of any kids dying from influenza-associated illness in BC. Again, that's every Thursday. All right. Serious issue at this point in time. Thanks very much, Keith. Trayvon Desjardins was just 17 years old when he took his own life while living in an Abbotsford group home. He was discovered four days after he was reported missing in the closet of his own bedroom. Tonight, a coroner's inquest into the tragedy has just come back with its recommendations. 
And our Aaron MacArthur is live with the breaking details now. Aaron. Yeah, Chris, the jury making 18 recommendations as a result of Trayvon Desjardins' suicide in 2020, urging all levels of government to expedite changes to the, the care model for Indigenous youth in this province. The jury is urging the Ministry for Children and Family Development and Aboriginal Housing Authorities to move away from the staff group home models, writing, these types of homes are not working for these kids. The jury, the jury also keying in on the lack of cultural competency. Despite a majority of kids in care being Indigenous, only a fraction of staff are. The jury urging government to increase the complement of Indigenous staff, as well as contract elders, to be available in the homes where Indigenous children reside. The family agreeing with the recommendation, saying the only way we can fix a broken system is to fix it ourselves. Trayvon's mother's lawyer saying the recommendations are welcome, but only if they're acted upon. I'm pleased and we're pleased with the jury's careful thought and consideration to the systemic issues at play here and the factual day-to-day -day, um, issues at play as well in terms of the lives of not just Trayvon, but other Indigenous children in the past and in the future. It's been a tough couple of weeks at the inquest. The jury hearing gut-wrenching testimony about how not only the system failed Trayvon Desjardins, but so many other kids in the province. Chris. All right, Aaron, thanks very much for that. Reporting live for us in Burnaby. Two women captured on security camera suspected of causing chaos in the downtown core. The business they hit and what the owner says about it. Coming up next on the NewsHour. Oh my gosh. The startled reaction to a baby bobcat in the backyard later on the news hour. And the troubling shortage facing Mount Washington just as it's set to open for the ski season. Those stories in a moment. But right now, Vancouver police need your help identifying two women suspected of breaking the glass at a downtown store. It's not the first time vandals have hit the City Lux boutique. But those who run the shop say they're confused about what's motivating the suspects this time. Ramina Dea has the story. A quick scrape of the glass, then smash. Seconds later, two women captured on surveillance camera leave the City Lux boutique. She punctured it literally right there. Store manager Kim Nguyen says it will cost roughly $3,500 to fix it. It was really frustrating because I know what it entails, because it's happened to us before. Another busted $5,000 window just three months ago. And then there was this. A female suspect stole an ottoman from the same boutique with staff in the store. Something that we're talking about daily, how to handle this situation, how to handle that. And it was never like this before in that area. So it continues to get worse. And it's really our safety that we're concerned about. This happened again. Downtown Vancouver businesses fed up of being victimized over and over. According to the VPD's latest numbers, there's been a 64% spike in commercial B&Es and busted glass in the downtown core compared to three years ago. The police confident the crimes are underreported. It's important, just as important as everything else, every other crime that happens that people report it so that we can track it, so that we can investigate it, and so that we can hold people accountable. Back at the boutique, Nguyen wonders what was the motive 
theft, vandalism. Police still looking for the well-dressed suspects. One wearing what looks like a Canada Goose jacket, retailing for more than $1,000. Hopefully they don't go away scot-free. Hopefully there is some type of justice that comes about it. Romina Dea, Global News. Just ahead, the pains of condo ownership. The 730 bucks just randomly appeared. Condo buyers on the hook for hundreds in utility costs before they even moved in. And holiday cybercrime, how scammers are playing the Grinch this Christmas. Another slow go for eastbound traffic along Highway 1 through Burnaby this evening with congestion at merge points like Willingdon and Kensington. Through a charitable partnership between Kermac Cares for Kids and Surrey Memorial Hospital, when you choose Kermac Collision and Auto Glass, you also support the Surrey Memorial Children's Health Center. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. More than a dozen condo owners in Squamish are on the hook for a utility bill they say they shouldn't be responsible for. The bills are from 2020, before some of the owners even purchased their units. But the developer has never paid, and the district says current owners have to. Julie Nolan reports. Tyler Clements and Jenna Beattie were excited to move into their Squamish condo in July. But when they signed ownership papers with their notary... It came back showing from the District of Squamish with their letterhead that there was no outstanding debts on the property, no property taxes or utility bills owing. Yet in September, the couple, along with several other owners, were given a bill saying they owed $726 from two years ago. And they could not really provide any explanation where, why we were on the hook for this money. Even though Clements is not the original owner of the unit, he and other owners are baffled by the fees passed along to them for utilities and taxes owing, which should have been fully paid by the previous landowner and developers. That zero that we gave you on that tax certificate that you paid for actually should be $726. The District of Squamish is not budging. In a statement, they say, we empathize with the owners of the 18 units in the main building who did not own their property in 2020. The district has a statutory obligation to collect utility balances owing from the current strata unit owners, regardless of whether they were the beneficiary of those utilities in 2020. The developer of the project did pay a portion of the debt to the district, about 26000 of 70000 owing. However, the district also contends they are only legally able to collect fees from the current property owner. And if you don't pay, there's potential that, you know, they could repossess the property. Several attempts to reach the developer have been futile as their websites are no longer working. Other contact information seems to go nowhere as Global News tried to get their side of the story. Calls to phone numbers listed for Gravita's partners were either disconnected or no longer in service. The amount of stress involved in, in trying to fight this, I, I don't feel that I should bend over and just pay the money. What's going on, Georgie? Leading up to the holidays and money is tight, the couple might not have any other choice but to pay. Julie Nolan, Global News. Well, Christmas is less than three weeks away, and many of us will be shopping online and shipping packages to friends and family. Unfortunately, experts say this is also prime time for fraudsters and cyber criminals. 
And with more on the latest scams and how to protect yourself, here's Consumer Matters reporter Ann Drua. Ann? Thanks, Chris. The financial loss resulting from online retail fraud in North America is shocking. Cybersecurity experts tell us that in the last two years, online scams have evolved with criminals focused on stealing your personal information, especially at this time of year, which means when we're shopping for those Christmas deals, you've got to be extra alert. From fake ads to malicious links, the cost of being scammed while online shopping is massive. According to the U.S.-based Federal Trade Commission, in 2022, reported financial losses resulting from online retail fraud across North America may reach over $380 million. If it's too good to be true, it's probably a scam. Cybersecurity expert Chester Wisniewski from Sophos says... The rate of online fraud is often the highest near the end of the calendar year when cyber criminals are hard at work. And they will craft their lures to take advantage of the holidays, knowing that people uh, are, are doing all of these activities, especially around things like shipping and packages and gift giving. Some of the most prominent scams during the holidays, pop-up ads linked to false websites with bogus promises of deep discounts fake shipping notices and invoices requesting personal information often sent via email or text message. Shipping notifications that pretend to be DHL, FedEx, UPS, Canada Post, and because we're getting real emails from those companies, that's very difficult sometimes to tell the difference between a fake one and a real one. And once a fraudster gets access to your personal information, look out. That information gets divvied up many different ways. I mean, there are many online crime forums where you can purchase somebody's social insurance numbers and birth dates and information in order to commit identity fraud, credit fraud, loan fraud. The Better Business Bureau says one of your best defenses is to know who you're dealing with. Really take the time to make sure you're dealing with a reputable, trustworthy business. And be wary of ads on social media sites, a perfect landscape for scammers. There are lookalike websites out there that take advantage of great brands and, and try to imitate those. So do things like check to make sure that they've got a posted address and that address aligns with the one that you're familiar with. Cybersecurity experts also recommend doing your research. Comparison shop for prices and read reviews. Never save credit card information in a browser. Avoid clicking on attachments and unfamiliar links. Keep your computer up to date and use unique passwords. It's absolutely the number one most important thing because if you do fall for any of these scams, you don't want that password to then unlock all of your online life. Simple steps to avoid the cyber grinch this Christmas. And the Better Business Bureau also recommends using a credit card to purchase items when possible in case you have to dispute a fraudulent transaction. And if you fall victim to fraud, call your credit card company to report the incident and monitor your bank statements. It's also important to notify the Better Business Bureau and the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre to help prevent others from falling victim to future scams. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. Happy shopping. All right. Thanks very much, Ann. Coming up, Iranian executions impacting Canadian families. They do it because they can and they can get away with it. Protesters put to death after standing up for human rights and the pressure on Canada to do more. Plus, the search for the truth about the wolf call and how the animals are really killed in B.C.
Good evening. Traffic is in pretty decent shape both ways at the Patello Bridge right now, but do keep in mind that it'll be fully closed later on from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. for maintenance. Just head over to the Portman Bridge instead. Contact Integra Tire today for great deals on GT radial tires like the Adventure OAT3, perfect for light truck and SUV owners. Integra Tire, truly local. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. Iran has executed a prisoner convicted for allegedly committing a crime during the country's ongoing protests. It's believed to be the first death penalty carried out by Tehran. And as Negar Mojdahedi reports, it's disturbing news for Iranian Canadians whose family members have also been arrested in Iran. It's painful to watch. The moment Mohsen Shah Qadi's family learns that he has been executed by the Islamic Republic. In the wee hours of the morning, they carried out the execution by hanging without even telling anybody. He was hanged Thursday morning, the first known execution of a protester convicted over nationwide protests. He was just 23. And I saw the message that she was arrested, and I was horrified. Her brother messaged me. The horrific news hits close to home for Iranian-Canadian activist Amir Bajikian. Here and here, this was the birthday. This is me. This is her. His cousin, Samir Amis Babayi, an award-winning author, journalist, translator, and playwright, was arrested at her Tehran home. She is now being held at the notorious Evin prison. The helplessness, that's the worst part, because um, I'm here 15,000 uh, kilometers away. What will be of his cousin and other protesters currently detained in Iranian prisons? Fearing they will be met with the same fate as Mohsen Shah Qadi in the absence of international pressure. It's time to set red lines, and this execution is definitely a red line. <laughs> According to the Center for Human Rights Iran, 11 other protesters have been sentenced to death and 28 others, including some children, are facing charges that are punishable by death. They do it because they can and they can get away with it. Iranian-Canadian human rights advocate Nazanin Afshinjam, who founded Stop Child Executions, says the West needs to take action now and go beyond condemnation. If the international community doesn't respond with strong actions, it's basically giving license to the regime to continue with their execution spree. Silence is not the answer because four decades of silence and four decades of looking the other way and whitewashing this regime is what brings us to this stage. Because with silence, more families may end up like Mohsen's. Negar Moshehdi, Global News. Back here in B.C., the controversial wolf cull program is facing questions again, this time over pictures animal rights advocates say could shed more light on whether or not wolves are being killed quickly and humanely. But as Paul Johnson reports, the province says it has no plans to release those images to anyone. How is the government monitoring the wolf cull? Do these photographs even exist? The answer is yes. Pictures of B.C.'s controversial wolf-kill program do exist, but neither the public, the media, nor animal rights activists like Aaron Hoffman are allowed to see them. It was Hoffman who first found out about the pictures. We think the province has a responsibility to, you know, 
substantiate these claims that the wolf call is humane, and we haven't seen that yet. And so that's why we asked for these pictures. In the absence of pictures, we used information from government sources to illustrate what the province's aerial shooting program might look like. Activists worry that the technique of shooting wolves from a helicopter may mean it's hard to get clean shots that kill the wolves instantly and minimize their suffering. But the reality of the wolf call, we don't think that's happening. Since 2015, B.C. has killed hundreds of wolves in an effort to stabilize threatened herds of caribou. It's a program they say is working and is being done humanely, following the guidelines for euthanasia of animals set out by the American Veterinary Medical Association. But one of the experts who helped write those guidelines, the famous animal behaviorist Temple Grandin, told Global News that an aerial shooting program like B.C.'s could be anywhere from acceptable to terrible in terms of suffering, and said the release of pictures along with an independent audit would be ideal for assuring the public that the practice is humane. Those are both things that Hoffman is calling for. On Thursday, Global News asked the Ministry of Water, Land and Resource Stewardship what their reason was for not making the pictures available. They gave no reason other than they won't be letting them out. The citizens of BC have a right to know uh, what's happening to wildlife uh, at the taxpayer's expense. Paul Johnson, Global News. The Vancouver International Airport is joining forces with Quest Outreach Society to feed 7,500 British Columbians this holiday season. The 12th annual Hamper Drive took place at YVR today. Hampers include the meal essentials, and some festive favorites as well. Organizers say this year people in our province are in particular need with the rising cost of food and supply chain issues. Help support the very important work that Quest Food does to get healthy, uh, sustainable food on the tables of many in our community who need it particularly this year. Organizers say their goal is to make 1,250 hampers for people who need them. Coming up, dry run, the BC ski hill with a troubling shortage of water and why you should probably bring your own. And later in sports, deja vu for the Canucks with another nail-biting finish. Join Global News Morning live from the Pan Pacific Christmas Wish Breakfast. Come donate an unwrapped toy and make Christmas a little brighter for families in need. In partnership with Fortis BC, investing in energy for a better BC. Friday marks opening day for Mount Washington Resort on Vancouver Island. And while there's enough snow to do it, that is not the concern for officials on the mountain right now. They're being forced to take drastic measures to conserve water. Kylie Stanton has more. With just one day before the slopes are set to open, the countdown is on. Opening day, hopefully tomorrow. Uh, pretty exciting. I can't wait to go for a ride. But despite all of the snow here at Mount Washington Alpine Resort, there's a massive water shortage. It does show that it has been relatively dry um, and actually I'd almost even say uh, extremely dry since early November when typically November is the, the wettest month of the year for the island. In a memo posted to its website, the resort says the springs which produce Mount Washington's potable water supply have slowed to record low production. 
In an effort to conserve, the resort is shutting off water refill stations, supplying portable washrooms to limit the use of indoor plumbing, using disposable plates and cutlery, offering bottled water for sale, and urging staff and guests to bring a water supply with them. The operation of snowmaking equipment is also on hold. I think it'll be a bit of an interruption into what you would expect when you're planning now. Uh, but I think that we've all learned to be adaptable and, and pack our patients. Um, and I think that the resort would do well with, uh, with having guests try and do that as much as possible. The resort is preparing to stockpile backup water supplies for emergency use and is testing alternative potable water sources. It warns there is potential for boil water advisories and guests are being asked to do their part as well by conserving water while showering, brushing teeth and washing dishes, reducing toilet flushing, recycling unused water and only running dishwashers and washing machines with full loads. Uh, should be an interesting winter, I guess. And it may be a long one as well. There's no significant precipitation in the forecast anytime soon. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Good thing they got as much snow as they do up there. Let's check with Christy right now and see what else is coming. Uh, maybe moisture uh, before it's frozen is what it sounds like. Before it's frozen. Yeah, I suppose so. You know, there there will be a few areas across the south coast that could drop low enough tonight that we could see a few flurries. Let me just show you what's happening right now. We've got very spotty conditions across the region. You likely saw breaks of blue sky just before sunset tonight. The more consistent precipitation is in these interior regions where we are going to continue to see snowfall overnight. But let's take us into tomorrow morning when the temperatures drop overnight. Metro Vancouver will likely see a low of one or two degrees. Not enough potentially to see some snowfall, but higher elevations certainly could see some flakes falling. And one area that I'm watching is Vancouver Island. If you do see a few flurries, which you can see it's not a lot of precipitation, uh, we certainly have the potential of it being sort of uh, flurries versus showers. This next system drives in more significant precipitation on the way for later tomorrow, and we're going to continue to see that rainfall overnight. For the mountain regions, though, the freezing level will be low enough. It just means snowfall and significant snowfall. So it'll be be great on the mountains over the next little while. Quick look at the temperatures we're expecting overnight just to give you a perspective of the areas that could see a few wet flurries and as I mentioned definitely over higher elevations if we saw that. Uh, here's a look at your forecast for your Friday. We finally made it everyone. A long week in my opinion. Uh, you can see across the southern regions just a few flurries that will shift out throughout the day and for our region a few showers or flurries. Uh, temperatures will warm up to highs of 5 degrees across metro Vancouver. Periods of rain though by when uh, sorry, not Wednesday. We're, we're made, we made it to Friday. Friday night, periods of rain. And then on Saturday, we'll continue to see that. But a clearing trend on the way. Temperatures are going to drop into next week. But it looks like we've got several days of sunshine on the way. Tonight's Central Windows weather window coming to you from Kootenay Lake. John Curran sending us this uh, beautiful shot. Last night, we had a full moon. And, of course, the full moon in December is called the cold moon. So it happened mm. around 8 p.m. last night. It looks it in that photo, too, but that is a beautiful shot. Thanks very much, Christy. All right, speaking of cool pictures, an Okanagan woman caught a rare glimpse of a young bobcat right in her own backyard. Oh, my gosh. It showed up in Naomi Miller's backyard on Tuesday, curiously peering through her sliding doors, probably at the family pet, I would imagine. Miller says it was her daughter who first saw the wild cat and she grabbed her phone to document the event for her family. It was only after the bobcat left her yard that she realized 
What a unique experience that was. Little Bob Kitten. Okay. Uh, it, lightning does sometimes strike twice is what the Canucks proved last yes. night, it seemed like. You are correct. Uh, deja vu. Deja <laughs> yeah. vu? Deja vu. I was going to say deja vu, but I think that was a TV station. Deja, deja vu. Anyway, mm -hmm. last night's win by the Canucks looked a lot like Monday night's win by the Canucks. Back come the Canucks. Kuzmenko with Pedersen. Elias Pedersen shoots. He scores! Yep. Pedersen the hero in two straight overtime as the Canucks have overcome bad defense with great offense. Have they ever. Also tonight, the joy of toys and the lasting legacy of a very generous man. You know it's going to be a good sportscast when it starts with a quote from the great Yogi Berra. <laughs> yes. Well, Yogi Berra once said, I don't know what he was referring to, but he once said, this is deja vu all over again. <laughs> but he was right. Yep. Uh, Monday, the Canucks beat Montreal 7-6 in overtime. The crazy game where Montreal had a 4-0 lead and the Canucks had a lead that Montreal tied or the Canucks tied it and that uh, went nuts. And then it was 7-6 in overtime and that was the final for the Canucks. Last night, the Canucks beat San Jose 6-5 in overtime. Another crazy game, which ended pretty much the same way as the one against Montreal. The Canucks have now won eight of their last 11. They're back to 500. They've actually scored as many goals so far this season as Connor McDavid and Edmonton. But as we said, the last two wins were pretty much just copy and paste. It was a sequel with pretty much the same plot as the original. Smart move. Here's Miller in front. Tipped in. Andre Kuzmenko ties the game on a late penalty against Montreal, just as he did last night against San Jose. And then in overtime, which is the same guy who was the hero in the win over Montreal. Gonna get away with it too. Pedersen attacking from the side. He scores. Oh man! I think now we we play till uh, we play uh, until the last whistle. But then on the other side, we have a one goal lead coming into third, and they score too too quick on us. So gotta be better in that area because we've been uh, giving up too many leads this season. And that's the rub here for the Canucks. It's what Jim Rutherford keeps mentioning. Poor defensive structure, backed up by less than stellar net mining. But in their climb back to 500, the Vancouver Canucks have basically overcome that by playing 1980s hockey and outscoring their problems. How did that happen? And while it's fun to play and win this way, every Canuck knows it's not sustainable. We'll take it, we'll take it. Uh, you know, can't can't be mad at a W, but uh, obviously we'd like it in a lot lot less uh, hectic fashion. They'll play Minnesota on Saturday. When Connor Bedard and the Regina Pats were on that road trip through the BC division of the Western Hockey League, a, a lot of people were asking the boss of Regina, John Paddock, if they had thought about trading him to a BC-based team. There's been a lot of rumors Kamloops is interesting. 
Paddock actually started to get angry at answering that question and said the team has no plans to trade Bedard, even though he'll likely be in the NHL next season and whoever acquires Connor Bedard would give Regina a lot for him. Today, Connor Bedard was asked the same question. He didn't get angry, but he said he wants to stay in Regina. For sure, yeah. I mean, I've, I've loved my time here, and um, you know, however many here, however many years I'm, you know, playing junior hockey, I, I'd love it to be here. And um, you know, I think we, we got a good team as well. So, uh, you know, I've loved it here, like I said, and I uh, would love to kind of continue my career here. The BC Lions have signed veteran kicker Sean White for another season. He's 37 years old, but as we've seen before. With Pasaglia and McCallum, the Lions do very well with really veteran kickers. Uh, he was rock solid last season, though, led the league in field goal percentage. Hit on 36 of 39. 2023 will be his 15th CFL season. This is a good basketball game today, high school basketball in Langley. Last year's 3A champ, St. Patrick's against 4A powerhouse Kelowna. That's Irish Kokia, who had 52 points in this game for St. Patrick's. They uh, went to overtime. They lost to Kelowna. Nash Semniak with a basket right here. Semenyuk make that 101-96 in overtime for Kelowna, but uh, good game all around. What an effort. And of course tomorrow the World Cup begins again. Well, I guess it doesn't begin again. It comes back from its little break and it's uh, quarterfinal action. It's going to be exciting. Alright, uh, we've got more excitement for you too. Coming up, a secret Santa revealed. This is BC with Jay Durant is brought to you in part by Van Cam Freightways. BC owned and operated for 75 years. down to that snow report music. <laughs> Jordan Armstrong is here with a preview of what's coming up on Global News at 11. Jordan. Chris, we're going to take a look at the always hot button issue of transit funding. TransLink has several big projects planned over the next decade, but none are funded, including expanding the bus fleet, the electric bus fleet, that is. Right now, the funding model relies on property and gas taxes, but the new chair of the TransLink Mayor's Council says there has to be an alternative. But what is that alternative? Everyone wants better service, but few want to pay for it. The full story at 11. Chris? Look forward to that. Thanks very much, Jordan. For years, a man would show up at BC Children's Hospital at Christmas time with a whole bunch of toys. He never told anyone else, and he never left his name. Well, we now know that man was Victor Gira, who passed away back in 2007. But his family and friends have kept the legacy alive the whole time with an annual toy drive. And as Jay Durant shows us on This Is BC, it's helping children here and around the globe. First load for the toy drive. 16 years and counting, tens of thousands of donations. The Victor Gira toy drive has grown bigger than anyone could ever have imagined. First year, we had about 100 toys, and there's just a few families getting together. Uh, remember Victor? Victor Gira was a devoted friend and loving husband and father. He passed away in 2007, leaving behind a wife and four sons. Just before his funeral, someone close to him shared a secret about his anonymous gift donations to BC Children's Hospital in the years before his death. He said, every year they asked me, uh, who are you? So we want to thank you. He said, you don't need to thank me. And nobody knew. Not a family member, not, not, not anybody. This toy drive was started to carry on his generous spirit, part of Victor's legacy to help others in need. 
Over the years, they've continued to give to BC Children's Hospital, Canucks Place, and other charitable organizations in the province. But also putting smiles on children's faces overseas, donating toys to orphanages in the Philippines, India, and Africa. It's great to see that uh, they know that they're being uh, cared for by others uh, across the world. And the folks that are running the orphanage and the kids, they, they truly appreciate it. This is a busy week. Many trips around the Lower Mainland, picking up toys ahead of the big day. Here you go, Sue. A few more toys. All right. Saturday afternoon is donation day at the Riverside Palace Banquet Hall in Richmond. The goal is to once again fill the room. He'd be very, very happy for what we've done, keeping it going. We hope he's proud of us. For years, Victor Gira showed up at Children's Hospital with thousands of dollars in toys at Christmas. Never left his name. Nobody there knew who he was. A secret he only shared once that's now turned into an amazing display of generosity. Sometimes we keep things to ourselves, you know, but something like this, God rest his soul. The toy drive means a lot to me. It's just keeping my brother's spirit alive, you know, keeping his memory alive. And I know he's looking down upon us today. Jay Durant, Global News. That is awesome. Drop those toys off on Saturday. And if you know someone who has a great story to tell or something unique to BC you want the rest of us to know, just email your ideas to Jay at thisisbc at globalnews.ca. And of course, next week we've got the Christmas Wish Breakfast too. You got lots of opportunities to give toys in for children. Yeah, for sure. Okay, last word to you, Christy, on weather. Sure. Uh, so a slight chance of a shower or flurry, particularly across Vancouver Island. Temperatures will be cold enough. It just depends on whether we see that precipitation. Certainly rainfall by tomorrow night, and that takes us into our Saturday with a wet one. But we are going to clear out late in the weekend. Looks like we've got a couple of days of sunshine on the way, but it will be chilly. All right. Thanks very much. And thank you most of all for watching, folks. We'll be back here tomorrow night. Have a good night.